Hello, Quebec, Canada, and maybe the world. You are listening to For He Must Reign, and I am your host. They call me Treebeard, and today we'll be discussing the gospel, which is, I mean, it's what we talk about every episode, really. But more specifically, the scope and size of the gospel is what we're going to discuss today. That is, what is included in the gospel? And I'll be responding to the objection I often hear when people hear me talking about the Lordship of Christ over every area of life and politics, social issues, cultural issues, etc., etc., which is that we shouldn't really worry about all those things. Instead, we're, we're called just to preach the gospel, right? Don't worry about all that theology stuff or hermeneutics and interpretation and politics and social issues and cultural issues and, and all of that. Just, just preach the gospel. Um, that's really what Jesus expects of us, not good theology and so on and so forth. And yeah, you get the idea. Well, let's start with that idea that we shouldn't be hung up on theology. I'll address that first. The idea that we, we shouldn't really worry about theology or proper biblical hermeneutic. Don't let that hang you up, you know, interpretations or eschatology and creation and uh, the law of God and how it applies and whatnot. Uh, we should just be like Jesus, you know, I, I don't really get into all that deep theology stuff. I just, I just love Jesus. Well, uh, so there's a few <laughs> issues with that. The first is the idea that you could love Jesus without having a deep, passionate desire to know what he says about himself. Um, you know, it's just an impossible claim. I'll give you an example. Imagine for a second my wife, Kristen, who's a beautiful Filipino woman with dark skin and brown eyes and uh, brown hair and, and, and she's she's tall. And uh, if you don't know her and you're having a hard time getting like an image of her, like imagining what she would look like, basically just think of the most beautiful woman on earth and then just times that by like a hundred. Okay, so and she loves coffee, indie music. Those are a few of her likes. Uh, she likes hardcore metal music. Um, and even some emo music, um, you know, she, she loves to do things like interior decorating. Like she watches a lot of those renovation shows and, and decorating shows and cooking shows. She, those are her, her things that she likes, you know, she's very artsy and she's also a bit more of an introvert. She's not a big partier, right? Like she likes to, to stay at home and, and work on things in the house rather than go out and have big parties and stuff like that. So as I describe her and what she's like, you should be getting some sort of an idea about Kristen. Uh, now imagine if you were to say, Matt, describe your wife for me. And I were to say, oh, well, she's short and she's blonde. She's a white lady with beautiful blue eyes and she's very sporty and she loves skydiving and, and partying. And oh, her favorite music artist is Cardi B. I just, I love her so much. Now, would you believe my claim that I love her? Like, if I clearly haven't taken any time to get to know her, study her likes and dislikes, listen to what she says, uh, does that make sense with my claim that I love her? And let's take it even a step further. Imagine if you were to confront me on my claim that I love her and you were to point out that I don't know a thing about her. And I were to just respond to you with, well, you know, I don't really care about all those secondary details about her. I, I just love Kristen, right? Like we have a personal relationship and I know that she loves me and, you know, she loves me whether or not I have as much time as like other people to know all these complex details about her. Now, at this point, you should maybe begin to see where I'm going with this. It is, as Vody Balkan puts it, are you smelling what I'm stepping in, right? You'd call me a liar. 
You would. If I said that, you'd call me a liar, and rightly so. And it's the same with God. Now, that's not to say you need to know every single detail about God and have it all correct and right theologically and all that stuff in order to prove that you really love him. Right? Like, that would be an unreasonable expectation, like even for your spouse, who is a, a creature, a finite being, you couldn't know everything about your spouse and get it all right. It's much more unreasonable for an infinite God whose attributes are beyond human capacity and understanding. Right? But rather what I am saying is there should be a desire to know everything you could possibly know about God if you claim to love him. Because you love him and you want to seek his face, just as the great godly men in the Bible sought to do so. If you want to know God, you must study his words. Ephesians 4, 12 and 14 lays out for us the importance of the prophets. Right Today, we know that the prophets and the law is, is the word of God. That is what the prophets and the law and the apostles gave us. So there's an importance of studying the prophets and having teachers and elders to explain that to us. Right, Not that they're the final authority, but it's we, we, we learn from ordained elders and teachers. They help us understand the prophets. Right, It says that we might attain the unity of faith by those means. And of the knowledge of the Son of God, it says, unto a full-grown man, unto the measure and statutes of the fullness of Christ. So as we study God's word given to us by the prophets and apostles, and we listen to sound teaching and doctrine, you know, we may know God and love Christ in doing so. We learn how to do it through that. And it goes on to say in verse 14, that because of that, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and craftiness and the wiles of error. So that's to say that we aren't anchoring, if we aren't anchoring our knowledge on the knowledge of the Son of God, his word, right, the prophet's through, through teaching and all that, if we are, aren't anchoring ourselves in that, then we're tossed to and fro by, by, by every wind of doctrine. Jesus said in John 17, 17, that the word is truth. God's word is truth. And it's the means by which we are sanctified. So how are we to show that we love him? Well, by keeping his commands, John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, if we don't study and read his commandments and passionately seek to understand what they mean and what they require of us, then how are we supposed to do them? So this idea that we can just love Jesus, but not do theology, it's, it's just incoherent. The whole thing falls apart. And the second issue I would raise is that theology and religion is actually an inescapable concept. All of life is theological. We all have a set of presuppositions that are rooted in our religious commitments. The very statement, I don't really worry about all that theology stuff, I just love Jesus, is a theological statement. Now, it's a very bad and wrong theological statement, but a theological statement all the same. When someone says, I don't do theology, I love Jesus, I like to ask them, well, who's Jesus? Right? To which they'll reply, hopefully, Jesus, you know, uh, the Son of God, right? The, 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 the second person of the Trinity, uh, he's uh, et cetera, et cetera. He's, he's the perfect, blameless. Well, oops, it looks like you're doing theology. That's theology, right? Theology is inescapable. We were created to worship, and so we are inherently a religious creature. 
And in the last episode, we actually talked about how a rejection of God to embrace even the lordship of government doesn't make us non-religion, religious, sorry. It makes government our God. Atheists are religious worshipers all the same because they were created by God to worship. That's their purpose. And so when the creator is rejected, they don't stop becoming worshipers. They actually worship creation as a substitute. Romans 1 verse 24 tells us about that. What does it say? It says, what does it say about those who reject God? It says they become neutral and unreligious, right? Well, no, it says for that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served, so they worship all the same, the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So religious worship is an inescapable concept. As I so often quote from R.J. Rushduni, it's not whether, it's which. It's not whether you will worship or live and behave according to your theological commitments. It's which God you will worship and which theological commitments you will have and live and behave in accordance with. We are inherently living and making theological statements every moment of the day. It's just a matter of whether or not those theological statements are true or false. That is, do they line up with what God says is true or not? On the heart of every believer is supposed to be written actually the words of God, his commandments and statutes. It is uh, according to Ezekiel 11:19, speaking of the promise in the new covenant, tells us uh, that, 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 that God's law is supposed to be written on our hearts. It's also written in Ezekiel 36, 26. This is no small deal. deal. It's quoted several times. The prophet Jeremiah also said this in Jeremiah 31, 33. And it was quoted in the New Testament just in case you're saying, well, that's Old Testament. It's quoted in the New Testament in Hebrews 8.10. So we're supposed to bear the mark of God. Right? We've all heard of the mark of the beast, right? Like in Revelation, we hear about um, a mark on the hand and the forehead of the beast. But that's actually not the first time we're told of a mark in the Bible on the forehand. Uh, sorry, on the forehead and the hand, the forehand. <laughs> Deuteronomy 6 in verse 8 tells us where to have God's mark. That is his holy commandments on our hands and on our foreheads. That is to say that our labor and our minds belong to God. And therefore, our thinking and our work ought to reflect his character. And where are we to find his character? Well, the word of God. This is inevitable. We either bear the mark of God or the mark of the beast. We are either a slave to Christ or a slave to sin. We are either a child of God or Satan is our father. We're inherently religious. It's not whether, it's which. There is no neutrality with God. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus identifies people into two categories, two groups, people who are with him and people who are against him. There's no neutrality there. All of life is religious. All of life is theological. And therefore, back to the main point that I want to address, the gospel directly, not secondarily, directly speaks to all of life. Theology matters. Now, I recognize that there are people who idolize theology and do not love Jesus. Right? The Pharisees are a perfect example of that. Actually, Jesus even told the disciples, if you remember in Matthew chapter 23, he told them to listen to them because their theology was great. 
but he did consider them unbelievers because they didn't actually do what the word of God said. They, they, they talked the talk, they didn't walk the walk. But that is not the overbearing issue in the evangelical West, right? Our problem uh, in the Protestant Western church today is not that we just know our Bibles way too well. It's actually the exact opposite. An article I read published by AmericanVision.org in January was commenting on a Barna study uh, that was done on behalf of the American Bible Society showing that American Bible reading daily, like daily reading of the Bible among Americans, is actually typically at a level of only 14%. This is supposed Christian America. And that since COVID restrictions and lockdowns, it's actually dropped to 9%. That's to say that now when people have more time and less excuses than ever, we're reading our Bibles less. This issue is not, uh, our issue in the West is not rather the idolatry of the Bible. It's just, it's not. I'm not saying again that those folks don't exist, but I cringe every time I hear A Christian pastor out here in the West rail on the idea that Western Christians are just so caught up with their noses deep in their Bibles that they're forgetting all about Jesus. The West is forgetting about Jesus because they don't read his word, not because of our overwhelming commitment to do it. That's just not the reality. So onto this idea now, the second and and greater point I wanted to make that we shouldn't worry about issues of culture, politics, uh, elections, justice, uh, social issues, um, you know, uh, business, stuff like that. We should just preach the gospel. Uh, That's the Great Commission after all. Let's just stick to the Great Commission. Uh, Now, I actually agree with that. That's a great idea. Let's stick to the Great Commission. Uh, But let's look at the Great Commission verse, the the one that's most uh, famously quoted, Matthew 28, uh, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So there it is, right? That's all there is to it. Uh, Nothing in there about justice or social issues. Um, Except uh, there's this one thing. Why does the verse start with go therefore? Just a little tip on studying the Bible. Whenever you see the word uh, therefore, uh, find out what it's there for. (laughs) So let's look at the verse that came before uh, verse 19. So verse 18 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Right? So we're not actually just told to go and make disciples. If we if we go and make disciples, we're in disobedience. We're told to go, therefore, and make disciples. We're told that Christ has all, and all means all, authority in heaven, that's the spiritual realm, and earth, the physical, material realm. Go, therefore, because he has all authority, and preach the gospel. So let me ask. So when Jesus says he has all authority on earth, are politics a thing on earth? Are social issues a thing on earth? Are issues of justice a thing on earth? If so, Jesus has authority over them. And he tells us to go, therefore, because he has authority over those things. 
But what does he have to say about those things? Like, what does he have to say to those things, right? What are we supposed to, it's going, he'll go there for and make disciples because he has that authority. Okay, and then what, right? Well, let's look at the verse after. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus says he has all authority to go get the nations and make disciples and baptize him baptize them and then teach them to obey all his commands his law therefore the social issues cultural issues political issues and all that fun stuff are in the scope of just go preach the gospel when people say i don't worry about those things just preach the gospel the thing is those things are in the scope of just preach the gospel that's part of it jesus has authority over those things and the word law of god speaks to those areas Jesus taught us to pray how? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth. How? As in heaven. How strictly do you think they hold to the will and law of God in heaven? So again, we see no distinction in the gospel being made by Jesus himself or anyone else for that matter in the Bible of spiritual things that the gospel is concerned with and then like secular material things that the gospel is not concerned with. But rather, we have all of life being brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. All of it. So, the gospel is concerned with all of those things. And it happens by, what happens through the gospel, it's by the preaching of gospel that all things are brought into the feet of Jesus Christ. We talked a little bit about this in my first episode, but I'll try to summarize it a bit. Uh, So the the gospel is the remedy for sin. We know that, right? So sin enters into the world in Genesis 3, and immediately we see the consequences. Not only uh, is man's heart corrupted, right? We understand that part. But also, immediately after that, Adam blames Eve for his sin. So man's relationship to his wife is corrupted. We see an example of that right away, and vice versa. Eve's relationship to her husband, right? Soon after, God uh, actually kills the first animal to make clothes out of the skins for Adam and Eve, right? And then he puts enmity between Eve and the snake. So man's relationship uh, to the animals in the animal kingdom is changed, right? And then God curses the garden. It bears thorns, and it's by the sweat of our brow that, that, that man produces fruit. So man's relationship to labor is corrupted, right? And then within one chapter, we have the first murder. We have Cain killing Abel. So man's relationship to man, to each other, is corrupted. And then soon after, we have God flooding the entire earth. So man's relationship to the land and nature itself is corrupted. And then the Old Testament goes on to tell us of corrupt sexual relationships and corrupt marriages and corrupt priests and corrupt kings and rulers and corrupt nations and and all of that fun stuff that, you know, that is under the wrath of God as a result of that original sin in the garden. And so as we see, sin affects every area of life, man's relationship to God, man, marriage, work, nature, the animals, the political realm, and and so on. And so nothing is left out of the scope of sin's corruption and touch. And so if the gospel is the remedy to sin, then what exactly is left that is out of the scope of the gospel? Nothing. 
That's the answer. If, if, if you answered nothing, ding, 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 you got it. You got it. You, you can't have the gospel over here and then like political issues and cultural issues over here as a separate thing. They're part of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ through the gospel. And, and the Reformed Christians who came before us actually understood this. Like, I thank God that the Christian men who stood for the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade, when they were being persecuted and beaten and chastised by their own fellow churchmen, did not believe the lie of, I don't get caught up in social and political issues, I just preach the gospel. Now you can see then with that a, a very real example from history why this, um, you know, as it's called two kingdom theology uh, or, or uh, this dualist perspective of Christianity, it can be incredibly uh, damaging to our call as, as believers, as followers of, of King Jesus to be salt and light in a rotting and darkened culture, right? So, so what are issues today that Christians can shed light on, shed the gospel light onto? That's the question we should ask to bring real lasting redemptive change to. But the church can't because it's currently saying, I don't get caught up in the isms and cultural issues. I just preach the gospel. What are those issues? Like abortion, politics, the pornography industry, COVID and lockdowns? Are those things we need to be salt and light to? That the church is like, oh, we don't get involved in that. We just preach the gospel. Socialism or Marxism? That is a big one. What about racism? Like real racism, not the woke neo-Marxist redefinition. Racism as defined by God. The hatred of your brother and sister, your fellow image bearer for the color of their skin. Like what, what are the issues that God speaks to that we are largely not giving a response to in the world? And are we largely without a response because we believe the scriptures are insufficient to speak in those areas? Because if, if all of life is religious, then 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and that it's fully sufficient for every good work and that through it, were complete as, as men and women of God, if that's true, then the scripture is sufficient to speak to all of these areas. So what are the areas we haven't been speaking to as a church, as people in covenant with an almighty God who've been charged to make disciples and then tell them what he commands? And so I'm going to leave on this note. I want, I want to leave you with Isaiah chapter one. It's a, it's a hard passage, but it's an important one and it's a meaningful one. And, and I want you guys to think about this. So we're going to start at verse 10 to 18 because it's a little long and we're coming up to um, 23 minutes here. Um, it's a passage where the prophet Isaiah is speaking to God's covenant people and he's telling them of what God thinks of their piety and their holy worship uh, and, and their, their gatherings, their, their Lord's Day gatherings and worship practices and ceremonies in light of their lack of involvement in justice in, and, and in the political sphere and social and cultural affairs of the land. And I want you to remember here, he's talking to Israel because he's going to refer to them as Sodom and Gomorrah, but he is speaking to Israel here. And, and, and you can actually go and, and start at verse one when the podcast is over um, and you'll get a little bit of the more of that context yourself. 
Um, but he's going to call them Sodom and Gomorrah, which was meant to be a reproach to the nations uh, as, as an example of the epitome of wickedness, of what God detests. And in modern times, um, that would be like if God were to reprove us, uh, rebuke us, and tell us um, what he thinks of our worship services and gatherings, and he were to call us Auschwitz. Because we get all the Sunday stuff right, but then in the week we're not doing his work. Just to put a little context. So starting at verse 10, um, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ears, give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and appointed feasts my, whole, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. I'm actually going to stop there at verse 18. I encourage you to go read that on your own, starting from verse 1. And consider if this is something that God could say to us as covenant people in Canada. Do we get church right and everything else wrong? Do we have a one day of hard work where we work so hard to put on this big thing on Sundays and then a six-day Sabbath where we do nothing? Or is it that we ought to be working in the world for six days and resting in the presence of each other and our Lord on the seventh? This has been For He Must Reign. I hope this episode has blessed you and encouraged you and moved you to action for the kingdom of King Jesus. Uh, be sure to share this episode with your friends and anyone you think who would be blessed by this. And uh, also, thanks for listening. Um, you know, it's been a few weeks now and it's encouraging. I've been getting feedback and people are listening and that's just awesome. That's, that's encouraging that people uh, would want to listen to my voice <laughs> for 20 to 30 minutes a week. Uh, so God bless you all. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time. And uh, that's it.